we are finishing this section on the covenant that we need, which Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10 have been all about in describing this situation that we have before God. Uh, The big problem that the writer of Hebrews has expressed to us uh, in these final chapters before he gets to his full exhortation of what the people are supposed to do with all of this is really just a summary of how insufficient the first covenant with all of its sacrifices and all that its system was, how completely insufficient it was. The law of Moses was never intended by God to be the full reality. And that's what verse 1 says. It was a shadow of the good things to come. That's a perfect summary of the things that we have been seeing in these chapters 8, 9, and now in the beginning of chapter 10. God never intended to be able to perfect the worshipers. You saw that at Mount Sinai. The people could not come near to God, but had to stay at a distance. Even in the tabernacle, the people cannot come near to God. Only the priests are in the inside who are doing the offerings. Yet even the priests cannot come near to God. No one can come near to God. Not even the high priest can come near to God. And that is only once a year. And even at that, he has to do it again year by year by year. There is a picture of insufficiency. It cannot bring people all the way to God. It cannot bring them close to God. And God in that first covenant was trying to show that. Trying to show that we needed a better covenant. We needed a new covenant. We needed something that could perfect us and bring us all the way to God. In verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 10, you'll notice if that first system had worked we would still be doing the first system. (laughs) The first system with its tabernacle and sacrifices and offerings, if that brought us all the way home and brought us close to God, then there'd be no need to stop it and put in a new one. And that was the point that was made even back in chapter 8 and it's brought about here. But notice the point that's drawn out at the end of verse 2 as well as in verses 3 and 4. It says in the middle of verse 2, Since the worshippers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The writer of Hebrews here highlights two things about the repetition of the sacrifices that was supposed to happen. Number one, he says that the repetition of the sacrifices caused the conscience to remain guilty. It's very important to note that verse 3 says, when it says that there's a reminder of sins every year, well, who's being reminded of the sins? In verse 2, it's the worshiper. The worshiper every day is offering sacrifices every week, every month, and every year. It doesn't say God remembered every time. I, I grew up as a kid hearing that, and then I read this and I went, wait, it doesn't say God was remembering. It says God was forgiving those sins under the old covenant. The problem is in the heart of the worshiper. And what I want you to do for a moment is try to transport yourself into that world for a minute. And imagine... With your sins, how many sacrifices every day you would be bringing to the priests? Okay. 
Every time you commit a sin, I want you to go get an animal and go drag it to the priest. Do you get a sense of how guilty you would feel day by day by day by day by day every single day? And then think about you would have this huge day every year. Day of atonement. High priest is going in with the with our blood and the blood of animals so that atonement can be made and throwing it on the mercy seat. Day of atonement. And you know what happened tomorrow after the day of atonement? You grabbed your animal and had to go to bring another sacrifice for your sins. What's happening? It's just burning into the conscience You have sin. You have sin. You have sin. And there is just this recognition of all that you've done. I hope you can kind of by contrast see how the once for all sacrifice of Christ eliminates that, doesn't it? Where we're not daily, 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 daily. Because that was the intention of that was to get you to see you have a major problem before God. The repetition of sacrifices maintain the guilty conscience. It would be like if your spouse every day reminded you of your sins every single day. I'm going to feel guilty every single day because you keep talking about it every single day. That's what the sacrifice was supposed to do to the worshiper. Every day, here's another animal. And you're just weighed down with how much you have put blood on the altar and the guilt of what your sins have done. And that's what he's saying is with all of the animal sacrifices and the blood of bulls and goats, it didn't perfect the conscience. It didn't deal with it because you did it again tomorrow and had to do it again the next day and the next day and the next day. And every year and every Sabbath, you had all of these sacrifices constantly being offered on our behalf. And not only that, he points out in verse 4, the repetition of the sacrifices revealed the impossibility ultimately of these sacrifices to take away sins. If they were the perfect permanent sacrifice, then you wouldn't need to get an animal tomorrow and the next day and the next day and year by year and all of that. And what she wants you to see is God was intending to show something with that first covenant. Really trying to get the people to understand the gravity of sin, the problem of guilt, and we need something better to deal with our sins and we need a different covenant. And so that's what those first four verses are laying out. The law of Moses was a shadow of things to come. Uh, Notice it was of good things to come. Something better has to arrive because this situation Situation isn't cleansing the conscience and is not ultimately dealing with sin so that we can be drawn near to God. That's what brings us to verse 5 then where it says consequently. So what's going to be the good news? What's going to be God's answer? Here's God's answer in verse 5. When Christ came into the world, He said, I would like for you to highlight that. That is striking. When Christ came into the world, he said, but then the writer quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which when you read Psalm 40, 
There is no way that this can be a strictly messianic prophecy because like in verse 12, it certainly are words of David that says his iniquities have overtaken them and they have become more than the hairs of his head. Okay, well, that's not going to work in speaking of Christ. So it is fascinating that you have here a prophecy, a psalm of David as it is attributed to him, and then turn around and say, here's actually what Christ said. So it's typological fulfillment. And notice the words that Christ said. Verse 5, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. Notice Christ understands the situation. And what God does not want is just mere sacrifices, offering sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. It appears to me when you get like out to Malachi, the people have apparently become numb to the whole idea of sacrifices. Like anything that we do in repetition and becomes habitual and ritual and then begins to lose all feeling and knowledge whatsoever. And you can imagine it just kind of turned into that. And here is God saying, that's not what I ever wanted. And the last thing that I need is for Christ to come and just simply merely throw another sacrifice up. What does God want? He says there in verse verse 5, but a body you have prepared for me. Notice the picture in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. And this again is stated in verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Notice the writer. Now that was according to the law. It's being done as God said to do, and yet God did not desire it. Verse 9, what does He desire? Behold, I have come to do your will. This is what God desires. Not that His people just simply throw up externals and throw in another sacrifice and do some things that would appear to be pleasing to God, but that He would have somebody who would desire to do His will, and thus that is exactly what the Son does. He says, the Son says this, a body you have prepared for me. What does He do with that body? He does the will of God. He doesn't offer another sacrifice. It's not what He's looking for. But he does the will of God. It is so important that the writer of Hebrews continues to underscore this such important truth. Notice that the contrast is not God did not desire animal sacrifices, he desired the sacrifice of his son. I would have that would have made sense. I'd go, okay. We need that perfect sacrifice. In fact, the writer of Hebrews has made that point. But that's not the point here. The point here is animal sacrifices he does not desire. He desires somebody to do his will. And there's one who did it. And the son says, Abad, you prepared for me. Here's what I will do. I will do your will. The last thing God wants is our external actions. He has never desired external actions minus the heart. 
He has always desired for a people who have a heart to do the will, not just some people who simply do the will. You see Israel doing the will all the time. Are they offering sacrifices? Absolutely. All the way into captivity, they offer their sacrifices as God removes them from the land. Why? Because they don't desire to do God's will. They may be doing it. The show is there. But they aren't doing God's will. In fact, you don't have time, but I just threw up a truckload of Old Testament prophets who basically said, God is offended when we treat him that way. When actions, external actions that are seemingly right and good, but are done from the wrong heart, God calls that an abomination is offended by it. New Testament uses the word hypocrisy. That's what that is. As you come before God and your lips say all the right things, but your heart is far from me. Remember what he said next? Your worship is vain. Your worship's useless. It's nothing. Just because you think you have all the externals, you don't have a heart that desires God. It's nothing to God. And that's what makes this so special, what God is saying here. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. He caveats that. Now, wait a minute. God did call for that. But He called for that to come from a people who truly And sincerely desire God. And that is what you see in the Son. Is that the Son comes and He does the will of God. Friends, I want to caution us that we would never treat God, the true and living Jehovah God, like some of the idols or pagan gods that we think our God needs to be appeased by certain external behaviors. That God is happy because, well, you sat in the seat today. Or God is happy because you were baptized. Or God is happy because you have done some external thing that you put your finger on. I think in the world our favorite is, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. <laughs> That's, how, that's our, our true morality test. Well, I'm not as bad as them. God doesn't care. God has never wanted your list of five or ten things that you think make Him happy. He's got one thing that He desires for a heart to do His will. And that is what is precious about the life of Jesus. Here is the body, and why is Jesus obedient to the Father? Because He desires the will of God above all else. That's why He lives the life He lives. Because it's not about Himself. It is about the will of God. And so thus He says in verse 7, Behold, I have come to do your will. Verse 9, I have come to do your will. This is the big point that is being made. And thus then, if this is God's will, then what is Jesus going to accomplish with it? Verse 9, then he adds, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
Jesus, His whole purpose is to do the will of God. Leading us with this big question. Then what is God's will that Jesus accomplishes? He gives us a covenant that can bring us all the way to God. That was the will of God. God's will was that for all of His people to come all the way to Him. But we needed somebody to accomplish that for us. We needed somebody who could bring in a new covenant so that we could be therefore made holy. Verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let me not, maybe it's not a curveball, it is to me. I always read this in verse 10, and by that will, referring to the second covenant. I was wrong. That doesn't mean that. That's not what that's pointing to. That will right there is actually pointing back to the will of God as established back in verse 7 as well as in in verse 9. This is saying, it is by God's will that we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. This is the whole idea, and this is where verses 12, really verses 11 through 14 go. Every every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until the enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, For by a single offering, here it is, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus needed to live a perfect life in complete submission to God, doing His will so that He could offer Himself for us. This is the writer just kind of bringing it all together at this point. We needed somebody to enact a new covenant and the one who came did God's will fully, which is representative of the kind of heart we are supposed to have. So Jesus accomplishes God's will, sits down at the right hand of God and is now waiting for all of his enemies to be put under his feet. Now, I hope that you caught something in this statement here that is made here in verse 14. And it's stated here in verse, not only in verse 14, but also in verse 10. For by a single offering, think about it now, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified or being made holy. For all time, he has perfected those who have been made holy. Here's the picture. Here are God's laws. And they are written on the heart of the Son. Because the Son delights to do the will of God. He is in full submission to all that God desires. He says, behold, I have come to do your will. Sacrifices and offerings you don't desire, but a body you have given me, and I will fully do everything that is your will. And because of the Son's submission to completely fulfill the will of the Father, He has perfected those of us who are being made holy. And I want you to notice the picture of what that looks like in verse 15. 
And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. Because now these quotations will look a little familiar. What does he say? Verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Do you see how the writer of Hebrews defined those who are being made holy? Those who are sanctified? What does he describe them as? He says, well, let me quote the scripture from from Jeremiah again. The scripture that he quoted back in chapter 8. He will now quote it here again. What does God desire of His people? That God's laws be written on your hearts and on your minds. That's what God desires. In essence, what does that mean? It's that God's will controls your life. God's will is everything. Do you see the parallel to Jesus? Here the Son says, I have come to do your will. What does that look like? Full submission to God. Whatever God says, He will do His will. And that will of the Father took Him all the way to the cross. And through that offering, God is now bringing close to Him those who are being made holy. People can now be holy, perfected, brought all the way to God. But how are they being made holy? God writes His laws on their hearts and on their minds. See, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense if he turned around and said, and here's the people who are being made holy. You go to church every Sunday and you do all these externals. The very thing that Jesus says, sacrifices and offerings, that's not his will. He wants your heart. He wants your love. He wants His laws on your mind and your heart. He wants your desires. Those are the people who are being made holy. Nobody else. Those are the people who are coming near to God. Those are the people who get to enjoy the presence of God. Call Jesus a brother. Call God Father. We heard the words, He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Who does He say that to? Those who have the laws of God written on their hearts and in their minds. They don't treat God as, well, He just needs a sacrifice and we've quieted Him for a Sunday so that Monday through Saturday, we'll do whatever we want to do and then we'll offer up our Sunday sacrifice and He'll be okay with that. Not at all. Sacrifices and offerings I don't want. I want somebody who comes and says, Behold, I've come to do your will. That's what God wants. That is the heart that God wants. And notice he didn't end the quote right there. He just made it a little bit rougher in verse 17. Because in verse 17 he says, Do you remember who God said he promises to forgive sins? Those who have God's law written on their hearts and in their minds. Not by being a good person, not by doing not so many bad things, not by being better than somebody else, not by being baptized and doing whatever you want to do, not by showing up on Sunday and that's all you do. 
He doesn't remember the sins of those who have God's law written on their hearts. Or to put it another way, he doesn't remember the sins of people who come before the throne of God and say, Behold, I have come to do your will. Those are the people who are being made holy. Those are the people who are being forgiven. Those are the people who are being drawn near to God, who are following the example of Jesus. Behold, I have come to do your will. Whatever your will is, that's what I will do. And when it came to Christ, it took death. And that's why Jesus will turn around and say, you got to follow me. This is what it looks like as you come to do the will of God. I hope we will see the beauty of what God is saying in this. It is God's will that He's made you clean. Under the first covenant, under the prior system, you could not come near to God. If you remember one of the big points we made when we studied Leviticus a few years ago, was there were things that made you unclean. And they weren't sins. It was just being human. It just happened. You were unclean if you woke up and your skin was messed up. <laughs> You'd be like, ah, I'm outside the camp now. You're like, well, what did I do wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. I- I'm just human. And you're outside. God was teaching something. You can't just be you and come near God. He needs to make you clean. He needs to make you holy. God has made you clean and has brought you all the way to Him through the sacrifice of His Son. The big question is, now what are you going to do now that you've been made clean? You've come to the Lord. You've been immersed for the forgiveness of your sins. You stand before God and say, I desire to do Your will. Now, what are you going to do next? Now that you're clean. Now that you've been made holy. Let me illustrate it like this. There's probably, as a parent, only one time you don't want your kids to go outside and play. Usually you're like, great, go outside and play. Yeah, great. There's one time if they ask, can I go outside and play? You will say no. And that is when you just cleaned them up and showered them and you put some nice clothes on them. And it's no sooner that you've gotten them out of the tub and you've got some nice clothes on them. I want to go outside and play in the mud. And you go, no. (laughs) Why not? Because I just cleaned you up. You need to hear what God's trying to tell us. I sent my son to do my will. To clean you up so that you can come into my presence. Don't run back into the filth. I've cleaned you. I have perfected for all time. That is amazing. Perfected for all time those who are being made holy. And I cannot tell you how sad it is. That God rescues us from the things of this world, rescues us from the things that destroy us, only for us to run headlong right back into those very things. Things that will destroy us and things that will harm us. 
And rather than us having a heart to love God, because He has made us holy, He has cleansed us, He has set us free from our sins, how often we will stand in resentment against God. Because here we are wanting to do whatever we want to do. How dare you say you've made me clean. I want to go outside and play. And God said, man, I just cleaned you up. You shouldn't want to go get all muddy again. You should be glad that I've cleansed you. You should be thrilled that I've made you holy. In fact, because I've cleansed you, you should stand up to God and say, behold, I've come to do your will. What can I do in service to you? You see, that's why the writer of Hebrews puts an end to this part of the theology because the rest of the book is now all about the faith you need to have to be a follower of His. You stand up and you say, Behold, I've come to do your will. Now here's what it's going to look like. Here's what it means to be the people of God. I encourage you to think about your situation this morning that if you have not been living a life that is saying to God, Behold, I have come to do your will, you must change that part today. Those who have the God's laws written on their hearts and written in their minds, those, God says, are the people that are forgiven. Well, we live our lives in a way that says, thank you for making me clean. What can I do to fulfill your will? Or will we say, I can't believe you've made me clean. I want to live in the filth and the destruction of this world. Can we help you turn away from sin? We help you to live a life that is in full service to God, to love Him faithfully, to help you write God's laws on your heart and in your mind. We would love to help you do that. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?